Hi guys, before we start the show I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service hit them up through our link which is audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories and you get a free month including one free book of your choice. Alternatively you can support us directly we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries, you can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. Shortwave radio broadcasts, originating from unknown locations, intended for unknown persons, yet easily accessible by anyone. These signals contain encoded messages of intrigue for decades. What are they for? Who is listening? And why, in the modern age, is such an archaic form of communication still being used? Mysterious, nonsensical, garbled and yet somehow beautiful, Number stations pass through our airwaves, transmitting to no one. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome, Dark Histories, Season 2, Episode 15. I'm Ben, and today we're going to be having a look at number stations which is a subject that I've been a really big fan of, to be honest, since I first discovered them. And today we're going to be having a little look at them and unravelling some of the mystery that surrounds them. Some of it's certainly warranted, a lot of it's not, so hopefully we're going to sort of pull them out of the realm of the conspiracy where they don't really belong and sort of, say, unravel some of the mystique that surrounds them on the, on the internet. Uh, so yeah, that should be really cool. But first, I want to do a couple of quick thanks. Dark Histories reached 100,000 unique downloads this this week. So just want to take a second, give ourselves all a good pat on the back for that. Uh, I want to say just thanks for listening and certainly for sharing it around because I'm dreadful at social media, but somehow, you know, we're growing and Someone must be doing that on social media because I'm not. (laughs) So, yeah, I really appreciate all your help with that. To celebrate 100,000 downloads, we're going to be running a little competition. So be sure you listen to the very end of the episode. You'll see why I can't talk about it so much now. But if you listen to the end of the episode, 
you see what you need to do. That's all I'll say about that for now. But it's a pretty cool competition, if I do say so myself. So yeah, pat ourselves all on the back. Didn't we do well? 100,000. Congratulations. And I want to say thanks to our newest Patreon supporters, Ryan and Michelle. Thanks very much. You guys, obviously, you keep the show ticking, so thanks very much. I really, really do appreciate having you both on board. With that said, let's crack on with it. This is Transmissions from Nowhere, Number Stations. The history of radio used by military and government bodies is surprisingly long, with the British using radio signals for basic military communication even before the outbreak of the First World War. During the Boer Wars in the 1890s, the British Navy used limited wireless signalling on board their ships. Since they were the only country using radio at the time, there was no need for any special cryptographical techniques to be used and no complicated equipment to either send or receive signals. The Russians soon hopped on board, their navy too began to utilise radio signals around the turn of the 20th century as they prepared to enter conflict with Japan. At that time, both British naval vessels, alongside the Japanese, maintained listening stations on board ships to listen in to the Russians' naval plans, birthing the concept of listening stations and counterintelligence. It was during the First World War, however, that signal intelligence, or SIGIN as it was known, became a crucial part of warfare. The concept of coding signals and sending them through the airwaves matured greatly, and the British developed complex systems to both relay their own information to allies in the field and to listen in on their enemy's transmissions. One of the first acts carried out upon the declaration of war with Germany in 1914 was to order British cable ships cut all undersea communication cables connecting England to Germany. This forced the German military to use radio to communicate across mainland Europe, and after a short time and a little prodding in the right direction from amateur radio enthusiasts, the British military made themselves well-placed to intercept such transmissions. By the end of 1914, British intelligence had set up a ramshackle group of listening posts, consisting of a single military station in Stockton-on-Tees and several installations belonging to the post office. Personnel consisted of military operators, as well as private and civilian individuals from Marconi, a British telecommunications company, and a small group of well-off private individuals who owned radio equipment. This group was later to become known as Y-Service, a government-ran communication listening and code decryption agency. For the most part, the service's main role was to intercept and file messages sent from German military and they also took part in direction-finding duties. However, with the sinking of a German destroyer in October of 1914 and the retrieval of a codebook known as the Verkusbuch, signal intelligence stepped up a gear. The Verkusbuch codebook was used to decode messages sent daily by the German Navy to give position and route of every German ship currently at sea. This led to several large turning points of the war pivoting on radio intelligence espionage securing its importance in warfare. In 1919, after the end of the war, Britain set up a secret code-breaking agency named GC&CS, the Government Code and Cipher School, and they spent the majority of the 1920s deciphering Soviet-Russian diplomatic communications. By 1940, this had broadened to an operation covering the transmissions of over 26 countries. 
The German government also set up a code-breaking signal intelligence service in the mid-1920s under Hermann Göring's direction, and the US had, by this time, also begun similar operations. Though its agency, named the US Cipher Bureau, was closed down in 1929 by the Secretary of War, Henry L. Stimson, who claimed, Gentlemen do not read each other's mail. While this sentiment was perhaps well-meaning, it was a crucial oversight, and by the mid-1930s, as tensions between the US and the Japanese rose, the practice of reading another's mail begun anew. By the early 1940s, all pretense was pushed to the wayside by the American government, as the importance became apparent and the British military began supplying the US military with radio equipment, training them how to best utilise it for espionage activities. Gentlemen be damned. As war broke out across Europe in the Second World War, British intelligence moved all signal intelligence activities within GCNCS to the now infamous Bletchley Park in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire. Bletchley Park became the centre for all code-breaking activities throughout the Second World War for both the British and US intelligence agencies. At its height, Bletchley Park had a personnel roster over 10,000 strong, three quarters of which were women, and the majority of which held degrees in mathematics, physics or engineering, or having backgrounds in several European languages. Many of the personnel worked at Bletchley in secret, even to close family. This was signal intelligence on a previously unseen industrial scale, filing over 4,000 messages daily, and it paid huge dividends for the Allied forces who cracked both the Enigma and Lorenz ciphers at Bletchley, allowing the majority of the coded German communications to be read in plain English for the duration of the war. Bletchley also used the very first electronic computers ever to be engineered. Whilst Bletchley Park remains the most famous SIGINT operation of the Second World War, there were also hundreds of civilian amateur radio enthusiasts, named VIs or voluntary interceptors, who were vetted and enlisted to listen in, write down and pass on coded signals to the military. Some of these people worked up to 160 hours a week tucked away in garden sheds and rear rooms, writing down coded messages sent by the Gestapo and the SS. In 1945, peacetime fell across Europe, but it was within the framework of a strange new world. Superpowers vied for supremacy, the veil of the Cold War fell, and signal intelligence was to play a crucial role as countries embedded their undercover officers across the globe. Agencies needed a way to communicate with these officers, and what better way than radio? Bases such as Little Saiwan in Hong Kong an offshoot from the British Y service were fully manned as listening stations as the Cold War saw the airwaves filled with gibbering Morse clicks, robotic voices, stretched tones and very occasionally the odd conversation among operators caught in the background. Radio had become such an effective a means of communications it's still in use today. One of radio's strongest attributes however, the commonality of receivers in everyday homes so too poses a conundrum for today's intelligence agencies. We can hear it too. Today, these signals breach our airwaves on the AM radio band and they can be heard almost 24 hours a day on one hour or another. In general, the broadcast can be classified into three categories, numbers, morse and noise, 
though all three tend to fall into the collective umbrella term of what has been dubbed as number stations. These number stations send out curious broadcasts, many on tight, unflinching schedules. Indeed, one can even find websites online ran by enthusiasts that maintain listings for each broadcast which reads like a twisted entertainment guide, with names having been assigned to each station, often reflecting a certain characteristic of each particular broadcast opening, such as the Lincolnshire Poacher, Bulgarian Betty or the Gong Station. Whilst each station is unique to a degree, all except a few outliers tend to follow a set structure. As the broadcast starts, either on the half hour or top of the hour, a header is played. This is to alert the listener that a broadcast is about to begin and consists of, in many cases, a musical tune or a grouping of rising and falling tones, repeated several times over. One of the most famous examples probably being the Lincolnshire Poacher or the Swedish Rhapsody. In some cases, voice clips, as in the Yosemite Sam station, can be heard. After this short introduction, the message proper begins and the voice reels off groupings of numbers, often in a female or child's voice. Often pre-recorded, mechanical or digitally rendered, though there are some which use men's voices and others, more so historically, that utilise live readings. In the case of the Morse or noise broadcasts, a message sent in Morse code or a tight grouping of tones are broadcast instead. These messages can last, at times, for up to 45 minutes and are often themselves as uniform in structure as the broadcast as a whole. The Lincolnshire Poacher, for example, sends blocks of 200 sets of numbers daily. Once the body of the message has finished, the broadcast complete either by repeating the initial header or by simply repeating a sign-off word such as END. Though very little is known about the actual history of the number stations as we hear them today, owing not in small part due to their clandestine nature, it's fair to presume that the stations we hear currently have not evolved in great leaps since the earliest broadcast during the First World War, and they almost certainly are very close to those used during the Second World War. Indeed, along with the broadcasts themselves, even this story from Dr Arthur G, one of the civilian radio amateur VIs enlisted during the Second World War to listen to the broadcast, also bears a striking resemblance to both the enthusiasts who tune in to document these stations today as well as our current understanding of the broadcast themselves. A chap came to see me one day. He was in civilian clothes, but I formed the opinion he was probably from the Navy. He outlined the scheme to me, saying that if I could help, he would be very pleased for me to do so. After he'd outlined the scheme, I thought, well, here goes, it's certainly a good idea. But if we do get invaded, I've more or less signed my death warrant, no doubt. Anyway, we signed on the dotted line and started off. It was very, very interesting because we had to listen to certain frequencies on the radio that we were given and copy down the sort of code that we heard. I was always very intrigued to know just exactly what these signals were and who was listening to them. Who were we listening to? What they all meant and so forth. I must say that even until this very day, I'm not really quite sure exactly what we were listening to and what it all meant. One report, forwarded to the MI5 from a VI, shows random strings of five letters, 
not entirely dissimilar to the groupings we hear over number stations today. As curious as they are, broadcast at all times of day with such fixed regularity and in all manner of languages, do they actually mean anything? Surely after all these years, our governments have developed more modern techniques for distributing intelligence to overseas operatives. Do we still run hordes of spies like those imagined in black and white movies, filled with espionage and silent meetings in empty train stations? And are those spies really hunched over a small household radio in their kitchens, scribbling down these coded messages and cross-referencing them with their own codebooks hidden in false drawers and under loose floorboards? How do we know these modern broadcasts are intended for clandestine intelligence networks in the first place and are not just random broadcasts with little or no meaning sent by other radio amateurs mimicking age-old techniques? For decades now, radio enthusiasts have tirelessly twiddled knobs, peering through the static to document and try to understand the exact purpose and meaning of the station's broadcasts. One of the earliest papers published on the subject, written by Simon Mason entitled Secret Signals, was in 1991, and it listed pages upon pages of schedules and frequencies, itself a code to the uninitiated. In 1993, this prompted a group of radio enthusiasts to form based in Yorkshire, England, calling themselves Enigma, the European Numbers Information Group and Monitoring Association. This group of shortwave radio operators placed across Europe worked together to form much of what is still known and mirrored today around the number stations. Nicknames were assigned to clear confusion when talking about various broadcasts and a system of classification was developed to specify a station's type and language. M for Morse, S for Slavic languages, G for German, E for English, V for various, and X for non-voice stations. Much of the information was disseminated through newsletters and booklets. The very first newsletter, published by Enigma in 1993, documented stations named Two-Letter German, Station NNN, Five Dashes, The Lincolnshire Poacher, and The Swedish Rhapsody with a brief description of each station's format and known radio frequency. By the time of the Enigma Group's formation, enthusiasts had already been listening and theorising for many years what the stations might be, and from the early 1970s, the main theory that they were messages operated by government secret service departments intended for overseas spies was long-running and universally agreed upon as the correct interpretation for their use. In issue 3 of the Enigma newsletter, published in October of 1993, the following article on a station named the Tyrolean Music Station was featured and showed just how accepted the spy theory was at the time. Does anyone remember the Tyrolean Music and Numbers Station? This station operated in the 1970s. It operated on Saturday and Sundays on 6425 and 6660 kHz and was almost certainly the most individual number station of them all. Messages were addressed to named agents in German and the transmitting site was probably on the French-Swiss border. The typical Tyrolean format was of a seven-note orchestral taken from the Communist International. A German male then announces names of agents, example Heinrich, Fowler, Dover. Messages then follow for each agent separately. Occasionally bizarre variations to this standard format, example a forced tune then added, or non-standard tunes were played, interspersed with cryptic messages read out by the same announcer, 
such as Der Sonnenschein Wollisch, The Sunshine Has Gone Out. The stations even sent out Christmas greetings on 26th of December 1971. The theory that these stations were intended to be received by spies was not merely plucked from thin air. For a long time, it was based purely from speculation surrounding the sheer amount of resources it would have taken to run such a large radio operation. On top of this running cost, the actual broadcasting of such a station would be deemed as illegal. None are listed or licensed to broadcast. Then there are the jammers. Known as warblers, many of the stations are jammed by another station broadcasting on the same frequency, using a higher powered signal. Frequently, number stations have been jammed with an oscillating tone in an attempt to knock the original broadcast off the air, or at the very least, to obfuscate the message enough to make it difficult to interpret. Who would be going to such lengths and expenditure if the stations were not so important? One often touted line from officials is that they are broadcasting innocuous weather information, a story that was also utilised by the BBC when a listener from Andera who had tuned into the World Service had her service interrupted by the Lincolnshire poacher. The radio presenter read her letter on air and replied telling her the numbers related to snowfall figures in her local area. As for the actual content of the messages, interpreting it as code of some sort was theorised early on, and attempts to crack the messages, or at least make sense of some of the recurring elements, were made. A very simple but sound coding technique was initially theorised amongst enthusiasts, known as a book cipher. As the name implies, encryption and decryption of messages utilises a book to encode a message. The sender and recipient both own a copy of the same book, agreed upon in advance, and then a message is sent using digits which determine the page number and the number of the word on the page itself. For example, 11523. On the 115th page of the 2006 Arrow Books publication of To Kill a Mockingbird, the 23rd word would be room. Provided you and me both own this same edition, a perfectly innocuous item free of any suspicion, I could feasibly encode a message that only you would be able to understand. Unless, of course, an outsider was to obtain the information on which book and which publication we were using. Indeed, there are some number stations still running today that some people still believe to be using a form of book cipher. More predominantly, however, is the assumption that the messages were being encoded using a one-time pad cipher. Much like the book cipher, one-time pads are, like the number stations themselves, incredibly basic, however impossible to understand unless one was the intended recipient. Despite their simplicity, their use of randomised elements makes them mathematically unbreakable by any form of brute force or logic-based decryption techniques. The only possible way to break a one-time pad is to hold the key itself. A one-time pad cipher works in many ways similar to the book cipher previously mentioned. However, rather than a published book, the code is encrypted and decrypted using a series of random blocks of numbers. This is what would be the one-time pad, so called as each number in the block is used only once and then discarded. Firstly, the letter and numbers to be used are assigned a random two-digit number. In the most simple terms, this would be A is equal to 01, B 02, C 03, and so on. The person encrypting the message would then look at the first two-digit number in their one-time pad, 
for example 40. They would then use simple addition to add 40 to the number assigned to the letter they wish to encrypt. In this case we will use the letter C with the assigned number of 03, giving us a total of 43. This two digit number is then sent to the recipient and the number 40 on the one time pad is discarded. The recipient receives the number 43, they reference their one time pad which is an exact copy of the senders with the first number of 40. They subtract 40 from 43 leaving them with 03, look up the reference key to see that 03 refers to the letter C and then they too discard this first number. This system is used over and over, discarding each two digit number on the pad in order as they are used to spell out words until the message is complete. Using incredibly simple mathematics that anyone could do quickly and without trouble, only needing a pencil and paper, a message could be encoded in this way that no computer could ever break. The pads themselves could be easily concealed if made small enough and could be printed on materials such as rice paper that could be either burnt or even eaten, leaving no trace. Playing with codes is all fun and games, however, how is this relevant to number stations and not just simple speculation or conspiracy theories on the part of the radio enthusiasts who are tuning in? Despite their prevalence and out in the open nature of these broadcasts, not a single government were yet to come out and admit to running them. In fact, no government had yet even acknowledged their existence. In 1988, however, pieces of the puzzle began to fall into place, and the picture was exactly as the enthusiasts had expected. In 1988, 42-year-old Dutch immigrant Erwin van Harlem was arrested in his North London apartment. He had moved to the United Kingdom in June 1975 and had worked as a waiter in the Hilton Hotel on Park Lane Mayfair before opening an art dealership on Bond Street. As it turned out, Van Harlem was not quite the art dealer he had been posing as, nor was he Dutch. In fact, he hadn't ever even been to the Netherlands. Erwin Van Harlem's real name was Vaclav Jelinek, a Czech national working for the Czech STB, a secret service that reported directly to the Soviet KGB and he had been sent to London to spy on the UK and the US. Upon his arrest, magazines were found in his apartment packaged and addressed to Czechoslovakia full of encoded messages, as well as equipment for writing in invisible ink. There was also the recovery of a list of places that secret messages could be deposited and collected from, such as a broken wall in a pub named The Minstrel Boy, along with a tree on the outskirts of a local golf course. As well as all this, six tiny one-time pads were found, three of which were hidden inside bars of soap, and of course, there was a shortwave radio. In court, it was heard that Jelinek had received over 200 messages from a Morse number station transmitting from Prague, and they even read several of the messages he had received. Prepare your report for handover in Vienna. Repeat, Vienna. Indicate how you use the microfile. Regarding immigration, use your initiative. Send only news about intended actions against the Czech Socialist Republic. Jelinek was jailed and later released and deported back to the Czech Republic. But quite aside from that, number stations now had solid documented evidence as to their usage, and the argument for what the stations were was seemingly settled, moving one foot outside of the realms of the conspiracy theory. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, 
and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, many of the long-running number stations fell off the air. The Gong Station was a particular favourite, known for its off-kilter eight-note header, warbling in its spooky, haunting manner, and it disappeared in May of 1990. This sudden dropping off of activity was not considered to be a coincidence. However, it wasn't until the late 90s that any new information regarding the number stations would find its way to the public. The first ever official confirmation came from an article published in 1998 by the British newspaper The Daily Telegraph when they printed an article relating to number stations with the headline, Counting Spies. The article quoted a spokesperson for the Department of Trade, at the time the regulator for radio in the UK as saying, These number stations are what you suppose they are. People shouldn't be mystified by them. They are not for, shall we say, public consumption. Also in 1998, the Cuban Five, Gerardo Hernandez, Antonio Guerrero, Raymond Labanino, Fernando Gonzalez and René Gonzalez were arrested in Florida. They were part of a larger network of Cuban spies operating within the WASP network for the Cuban DGI to spy on the US. They received directions from Cuba from the number station known as Atencion a station that had been documented as early as 1962 and continues until today. The same station also played a role in the case of Ana Belmonte in 2001. Belmonte was a senior defence analyst working inside the Defence Intelligence Agency in the US as one of the foremost specialists on Cuba. She had in fact been spying on the US since 1985, sending information back to Havana and receiving messages via a Sony shortwave radio. Upon a search of her apartment and a forensic search of her laptop hard drive, many deleted messages were found relating to receiving messages via the Atencion station. And in an affidavit written by the FBI concerning her arrest, her use of the Cuban number station was written as such. Further analysis of Montes' copied Toshiba hard drive identified text consisting of a series of 150 five-number groups. The text begins 30107-24624 and continues until 150 such groups are listed. The FBI has determined that the precise same numbers, in the precise same order, were broadcast on February the 6th, 1999 at AM frequency 7887 kHz by a woman speaking Spanish who introduced the broadcast with the words Atención, Atención. Similar stories involving the Atención station in America include the arrest of Carlos Alvarez in 2006 along with Walter Kendall Myers and his wife Gwendolyn Steingraber Myers in 2009, all of which were arrested for spying on the US for Cuba and all of which heard readings in court referring directly to the same Cuban station. First documented in the 1970s until it fell off the air in 1990, the station known as OLX was confirmed to have been run by the Czech Ministry of Information when number station enthusiast Toto CZ emailed the Czech authorities to inquire on the off chance of the station. Their reply came as quite a shock after years of government denial and refusal of acknowledgement. Hello, it was a shortwave radio broadcasting into foreign countries which was being conducted by the Office for Foreign Relations and Information, 
formerly the Ministry of Information, the MOI. In what might be seen as a flurry of information after such a drought, documents were also published in the Numbers and Oddities newsletter in May of 2014, obtained through Polish archives. The documents were originally intended as part of a training manual for intelligence service agents in how to interpret number stations sent from the station Swedish Rhapsody. Well known for its musical header and strange childlike voice pronouncing Achtung before reeling off its numbered messages. Swedish Rhapsody was well known for its frequent straying across the radio band, often freaking out unsuspecting listeners of the BBC World Service as it ghosted into their reception. Among the various significant details revealed in the document was the interesting tidbit that after almost 40 years of being nicknamed the Swedish Rhapsody, after the station's musical piece in its header, the music was actually named the Luxembourg Polka, played from a music box. British intelligence agency GCHQ were the last to officially give any confirmation to the number stations. When asked of their operation, they replied simply, GCHQ are aware of the existence of number stations, but cannot comment on operational matters. Through tireless efforts of the enthusiasts, as well as the individual cases of ex-intelligence operatives telling their stories, Small secrets of the bizarre broadcasts have slowly been extracted. We know now, for example, that the Gong station was a Stasi-run station, transmitting from Wilmersdorf, just outside of Berlin, and that the Lincolnshire Poacher is run by the British and transmits from an RAF base in Cyprus. There are many stations, however, that still hold tight their mysteries. Some pop up and then disappear for several years, even decades before reappearing. Some just disappear forever, whilst others seemingly transmit in clicks and beeps without ever ending. The buzzer is one such station. The buzzer broadcasts from various sites inside Russia and was documented as early as 1976. For over 30 years it ran a continuous broadcasting consisting of an intermittent buzzing tone. Theories on its purpose ranged from the simple that it was a placeholder keeping a radio channel open, to the more out there, that it was either a kind of dead man's switch or a part of the Soviet dead hand, an automated nuclear launch system used as part of a mutually assured destruction plan. That was, until in 2010, when after nearly 30 years, the buzzer suddenly changed and the tone used rose. A week later it once again lowered. The buzzer continues today, and though messages are now broadcast at times on the frequency, no one has any explanations as to why Russia would broadcast a single beeping tone for what is now approaching 50 years at a not insignificant cost. The Russian woodpecker too hopped around the frequency band for a decade between the years of 1976 and 1986, broadcasting a repetitive knocking sound. It was broadcast from Chernobyl and it was so powerful a signal that it routinely knocked legitimate broadcast stations off the air, interrupting transmissions with its peculiar rattling. 
After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the breakup of the USSR in 1991, Soviet stations in Europe diminished greatly, with some stations falling off the air completely. Their activity remained strong in Europe, and in the USA, many broadcasts such as the Voz de la Chica, originating from Cuba, continue unabated. As well as these long-running stalwarts, many news stations continue to appear, often originating from the Far East. The Star Star Broadcasting Station from Taiwan, which opens with traditional Eastern folk music, leads on to an overly enthusiastic announcer who calls out messages such as, Please get ready to receive your message. And there is Radio Pyongyang from North Korea, which fell off the air for over 15 years, only to suddenly reappear in 2016. There are still many other stations broadcasting right now, probably some whilst you have been listening to this podcast. But why would a modern, sophisticated government still be using technology that dates back almost 100 years? The simple answer is that they are effective. Shortwave radio travels significant distances, as the signal bounces off the atmosphere and back again off the surface of the Earth. It can pinball around the globe in this way for thousands of miles. They are secure in this modern age when satellites, phones, email and internet usage can all be hacked, tracked, traced and filed. All an operative needs in the field is a simple radio, bought from any high street to tune in and receive a transmission. Bruce Schneier, a security analyst, said of the stations, You can't identify who the recipient is or where they might be. The recipient might be anywhere in one third of the planet. As a covert channel, it works very well. While some stations transmit random blocks of numbers, their headers having now been interpreted to inform a recipient of exactly how many blocks are to be sent in any given message, other stations transmit set blocks of numbers, such as the Lincolnshire Poacher, which always transmits 200 blocks of numbers in every message in order to conceal messages within another layer of security, so that even those who cannot understand the content cannot also determine if a real message is being sent or if activity is lessening or heightening at any particular time. Others have speculated that many stations, including both New Star Broadcasting from Taiwan and Radio Pyongyang from Korea, are broadcasting nothing but garbage and are used as a form of psychological warfare to make others believe that they are operating spies in foreign territories. After all, it's far cheaper to operate a number station than it is to operate an actual underground spy network. As number stations continue to broadcast, so do they continue to fascinate those who dig through the static, retrieving messages they will never understand. Unlisted, unlicensed, and with no one admitting to using them, like any good mystery, the allure of a secret hidden in plain sight creates an information vacuum that allows our imaginations to ignite. Who is listening, and what are they saying? Achtung! Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben, We're going to be having a little chat about number stations in a bit, as well as going on a hunt for a station live. Well, I suppose it's not really live because I'm pre-recording it, but sort of live. And I'll probably edit it down because I might end up fishing around for a station for hours. 
but sort of live. Let's pretend it's live. Yeah, we're going to be going on a hunt for a number station live, so stick about, and we'll be right back after this short break. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial, and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself off and on for over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible is an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, you can sign up for a free month, and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month, you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up and you've lost nothing, you've gained an audiobook, and you've helped to support the show. This month on Audible, I still haven't got round to the Templars book yet. I got my new credit and I bought a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, so that's going on the backlog with the Templars for now. But apparently it's a history of American nuclear missiles and the way in which they're handled to prevent disasters, whilst also having them armed and ready to fly at a moment's notice. And it documents the Damascus incident. So I thought, yeah, I'm all over that. History, the Cold War, near-accidental Armageddon. You can't go wrong, can you? They got desktop, Android and iOS apps, and they all sync up. And they also give you hassle-free returns if you find you've spent your credit on a duffer, which is something that I did when I found that I'd spent my credit on a German version of The Lost World. So they took it straight back, and I got my credit back, and everything was good. So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. 
welcome back. So yeah, number stations. What do I like about them? Because I've, I've, I've been in love with them since I first heard them. And I think it's kind of twofold, actually. Firstly, I mean, re- more relevant to this show is that just I, I love the mystery about them. And what's great is they're sort of like a mystery within a mystery because on the surface, when you first discover them, they're these sort of really mysterious stations that no one admits to having. And, and this is all true. You know, no one admits to using them things like that it's all it's all true but once you kind of dig through the evidence you realize actually there's quite a lot of evidence to show who's running them all the rest of it so a lot of those mysteries they get answered we know we know the Lincolnshire poacher is in Cyprus and run by the RAF for example you know that that sort of takes away the mystery of the Lincolnshire poacher really but on the other hand like sort of below that mystery you know we're still kind of left with the mystery of well, okay, we know about the Lincolnshire poacher. We know who's running it, but we don't know what it's saying or why it's saying it or who it's saying it to. So there's this kind of deeper layer that we'll, we'll no doubt never find out. The closest we got to really kind of digging into that sort of thing is with those documents that were uncovered for the Swedish Rhapsody, which is fascinating because the Swedish Rhapsody has been around for years. And to find out that actually... The song at the start wasn't the Swedish Rhapsody at all. It's the Luxembourg Polka, and that, you know that came out for like forty years later. It's it's fascinating. So they're kind of this multi-layered mystery, and you know they were at one point essentially a conspiracy theory, but they're a conspiracy theory that sort of turned true. To go one step further than that, there's still stations that we have no idea what they're for, like oddity stations. And they're just really fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of stuff online about number stations being sort of spooky and a bit creepy and, oh, we don't know what it is. Say, like, a lot of that can be scratched off because actually we do know what they are and we do know, you know, who's running them in a lot of cases. But then you've got these oddity stations and they're, they're really strange and they really do sort of fall under the kind of spooky and creepy because they're just plain weird. And I think it's just a universal fascination for number stations and things like that. Because I remember there's that YouTube channel that was around for a while. Uh, what was it called? Web Driver Torso. That was it. And and if you don't know Web Driver Torso, it was basically a YouTube channel that posted like hundreds of these videos, and they were the, they just repeated the same tone with these kind of geometric almost like MS Paint shapes on the screen. They're all like, I think, 20 seconds long, and it posted hundreds. And that sort of ignited, it was almost like the modern number station. But then it actually it turned out that it was a Google test account for YouTube, and it was testing certain things. There's a, there's a Twitter account that just posts random strings of numbers, which again is, is probably a similar thing. Um, it's probably like it's some sort of test account. But, you know, these, these, both of these, WebDriver Torso and the Twitter account, fascinate people. And I think they're the, they run on the same kind of idea as number stations, really, that, that it's sort of a secret in plain sight. You know, it's very public. But at the same time, you're not meant to really know what it's about. And that, that just fascinates. You know, it's, I love that about the number station, the way it's sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You ain't seen nothing, right? Whenever, Anyone ask the governments what about these number stations? They they all sort of say, 
Oh, we don't know what you're talking about, eh? Eh? Ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. Because, obviously, they know that they're in the public realm. And in many cases, they want you also to know. Or, or perhaps not you, but they want people to know that they're in the public realm. Because that's the whole point of them. Like, when you look at the DPRK one, or the DPRK's North Korea, if, um, if anyone's not as nerdy as me about countries it's the democratic people's republic of korea is north korea so yeah so you've got the places like north korea who sort of they want or the or most people sort of guess that they want people to know that that they're there for disinformation and the same with the new star broadcasting which i absolutely love because not only has it got probably the most lovely header with the traditional flute music but then it's got the slightly eccentric Mandarin-speaking lady introducing the messages and stuff. That, that, I find that fantastic. But that's sort of what leads me to the thing that I like about them, aside from the mystery. And that's how the number stations, they seem to appeal to two types of people, or sometimes crossovers like me. But you get the kind of radio nerds that are really into them from the radio aspect. And they like to kind of track where they're coming from and who, what they are and things like that. And sometimes they just like documenting them because they're sort of radio oddities. And then you've got the people that come from them almost listening to them like music, like sort of avant-garde music, which, which is, I mean, I'm really into sort of avant-garde, free jazz, off-the-wall kind of noise music. And, you know, I sort of love number stations just from a aesthetic value you know like i love the the sounds they make and things like that it's it's fascinating and and, and you get people like that so an interesting thing that happened with number stations was this group called the conet project um released uh at first it was a four like a box set four cd box set of number stations now i think it's a five cd box set they've sort of expanded it and it came with like a booklet and things like that and obviously they, they marketed it towards radio enthusiasts. But an interesting as, like side aspect of it was a lot of music magazines picked it up and uh, sort of reviewed it almost like an avant-garde music album, which is fascinating how they're appreciated for their say, aesthetic qualities, which is brilliant, I think. And talking about listening to them, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to try, we're going to find a number station. I'm going to be using a web application that's called WebSDR, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes um, if you're interested in doing it yourself. What's really good about WebSDR is that, obviously, it's free, so you don't, you know, you don't need a big clunky radio, and you also don't need a net, an antenna or anything like that. And that's sort of what's really great about it, because I, th- I think it must be like an open source program, but there's a bunch of... If you go to WebSDR, say I'll put the link in the in the show notes on the uh, you can get them on the website on the episode page you'll see that there's hundreds of radios or you know handfuls of radios and they're all around the world so you don't have to worry about weak signals or getting like a gigantic antenna because if you want to listen to us you know if you specifically want to target some stations that are broadcasting to america you find one that's based in florida for example which is fairly close to cuba and and that's probably where they're going to be broadcasting from if you want to go to europe you can find sort of ones in germany which will 
be good to pick up that and and so on you know south there's sort of west coast american ones that are good for picking up sort of the pacific signals and things like that so yeah i, I definitely recommend you should check that out if, if you're interested but that's what we're going to be using to hunt a number station now so let's go shall we i'm probably going to edit this down by the way because i might be hunting around for a while Okay, so pretty much straight away, I stumbled across this. We're on a Morse station, it sounds like. I actually don't know what it is. I'm pr- pretty sure it's in Russia, because I'm on a radio that's in Russia at the moment. And it's quite a clear, strong signal, so I'm pretty sure it's it's a Russian signal. I don't actually know if it's a number station. I don't actually know what it is, actually. But it's, it's definitely Morse, obviously. But it's sound, I've been listening to it for a few minutes now and it, it does seem like a number station because it seems to be a repeating message and when it hits the top you'll get this sort of descending row of tones and then the message seems to start again. So I think it probably is a number station so I don't know what it is. I missed the header so I have no idea if it even has a header. It might not. Okay, so I was hunting around for a little while on that radio and not getting much luck. So I've skipped over to a Japanese radio. So coming up in about 30 seconds, we're going to get a pretty interesting station. It's not in English, but it's dead interesting. And we're pretty lucky, actually. Pretty good timing. Boom, look at that, it's like perfectly on time. So straight off the bat, you're probably thinking this is just regular radio, because it sounds like regular radio, right? But it's totally not. This is a South Korean station called V24, and we're kind of lucky, actually. I mean, bear in mind, it's now about midnight in Korea, and this is definitely broadcasting from South Korea. And it's almost definitely broadcasting inside, or it's targeting North Korea. Because in the past, this song that we're hearing now has changed a few times. Recently, it's always K-pop. But in the past, it's been sort of all sorts of different sort of folk music and stuff like that. And it most of the time was North Korean folk music. So it's almost definitely broadcasting to someone inside North Korea. But what's cool about V24, which is the name of this station, if I didn't say, is that it's actually one of the oldest number stations that's recorded that's still broadcasting today. Started broadcasting, there's evidence of it from the 70s, which is pretty awesome. It went offline for a while, but it's, it, it's sort of bumped on and offline every now and then. But it did go offline for a while, but it's back online pretty strong now for the last couple of years. And yeah, ever since it came back online a couple of years ago, it just broadcasts this weird K-pop as its header. Which is strange. Because normally it's kind of like folk songs or 
traditional songs or you know you get those weird computer beeps this one now it just plays straight up pop music anyway when when the lady comes on you'll hear her and she says some pretty interesting stuff so the first thing she's going to say is that this message she says it in korean so it's not very helpful but she basically says this message is for and then she'll give like a five digit code and that's the person occasionally in the past she's actually said this message is for and given a name but yeah usually it's just a number and then she'll read the number um she'll read the code sorry and then she'll read the code and then she says uh i'm going to repeat it and then she repeats it a second time But the other interesting thing with this station is we might get it today, I'm not sure. Midnight, it's probably possible, it's definitely possible, but basically they leave the carrier running slightly longer than the station broadcasts for and you get to hear the computer that the numbers are being read off of because it's all automated from a computer. And you can hear that, we know that, because you can hear the computer shut down sometimes. Which is really when you get the Windows XP shutting down noise broadcasts. We might get it, I don't know. Right, so these are Korean numbers. So you've got like, il, i, sam, sa, o, yok, chin, pal, gu, yong is zero, um, and slightly weird she says um, like that's like thousand not sure why she says thousand but it, it kind of extends the message and makes it go on forever because she gets these ends up having to list like loads and loads of numbers so the end of the broadcast should be coming up now. We'll, we'll give it a listen to see if we can get to hear the computer shut down, because that's always quite fun. No, oh, not today. No, just a normal ending. But it's bonkers that that one, it's on such a schedule that you can... It comes on time, like bang, every time, perfectly on schedule. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a South Korean station, almost definitely broadcasting to people within North Korea, so probably intelligence officers working inside North Korea. Pretty fascinating stuff, right? Yeah, that's sort of number station hunting. And it's really fun. Obviously, you can check it out on YouTube. You know, check out our Swedish Rhapsody on YouTube and you can hear it. Yeah, great. You know what it sounds like. But, you know, there's something a little different to sort of tuning into hearing one live. It's a different feeling. It's much more interesting. It's quite exciting. So yeah, I definitely recommend you have a go on that. I'll put a link to it on the show notes. So that's number stations, really. They're, they're, they're kind of a mystery and kind of not a mystery. They're kind of fascinating. So there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that is purported to be a mystery, but actually it isn't. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that really still is a mystery. Yeah, I find the, 
you know, when you read about the cases of spies that uncovered slowly their usage of the number stations to be really, really fascinating, especially if you're sort of familiar with number stations and they come up in the court cases, like in the cases of the Attention Station, where, you know, all of a sudden you've got these FBI agents writing about Attention and you realise that they're familiar and they've been listening to it as well. So sort of a larger part, just talk about spies real quick before we go. Something I find fascinating, because anyone that knows, that's listened to Dark Issues for a while, or, or has listened to the bonus episodes especially, I know I kind of go on about spies in the bonus episode. I really love spies. I, I, I'm quite fascinated. Obviously I'm fascinated in history in general, but I, I really like Cold War history, and, and I really like the politics of the Cold War and things like that. And I really love the kind of spy stuff. But I tell you what's interesting about like, like the reason I think I, I'm into the spies is not so much the fact that they exist. It's almost like the absurdity of them that that I find interesting. I mean, well, we saw in the episode with uh, Van Harlem, he, he had one time pads stored inside bars of soap and he was leaving secret messages in trees on the edges of golf courses. I mean, it's almost cliche. And that's, I think, what I love about them is the absurdity. And I found sort of pictures of one-time pads that were stored inside hollowed-out AA batteries, which is just amazing in that it's almost like a story. It's almost like a fiction, but it's entirely true. And I find that fantastic. So that just about wraps that up. We've got some listener emails and then we'll talk competition time. So first up for emails, I got an interesting email from Christine who had a pretty unique theory on Zygmunt, Zygmunt Adamski from last week. Uh, Christine says, Hi, I really enjoy your podcast. The story of Zygmunt Adamski was actually one that I figured out a solution that sort of kind of fits. He had a need for money and that was the bottom line. So when family comes for a wedding, he takes that opportunity to go and try and get a loan or get money from someone. Loan sharks, robbery, that part I don't know. I'm thinking someone gave him a tip. He doesn't tell anyone, he gets the money. On the way back, he's robbed and killed, either by someone who knows about the money, or just some random guy who targets him. No aliens, no UFOs, just greed. Well, yeah, I mean... To be honest, at the end of that, I'm inclined to believe in your theory as much as anyone else's, really. It did seem a bit like a robbery in a lot of ways, like missing his wallet and his watch, for example. So, yeah, I mean, you, you know, your theory is as strong as anyone else's, really, as far as I'm concerned. But no, it's, it's a nice theory, and thanks, obviously, for emailing and uh, sharing it with us. So, yeah, cheers, Christine. And the next one's from Peter. Uh, Peter suggests the Oak Island mystery as an episode idea. He said, uh, although certainly it's not the darkest tale you'll tell, although it does go there, it's endlessly fascinating and to this day utterly perplexing. It's also a story that spans nigh on 250 years and is yet unresolved. Yeah, he said, I mean, he says it's right up the street of your podcast and I totally agree, Peter. I think it, it probably is. I've read of it. I've not read of it before, sorry. I've heard of the title before, but I've never read much about it so but it does sound like something i'd definitely be interested in so yeah that will be definitely on the list for the future so thanks very much for your episode suggestion and also thank you for your kind suggestions in terms of the production of the show certainly will be taken on board uh yeah thanks for your emails 
just two this time. Um, if you want to get in touch, contact at darkhistories.com. There's an email form on the website, darkhistories.com. So, you know, drop us an email. So anyway, we got a competition to celebrate 100,000 people. And it just kind of coincides with this episode. Before I do that, because obviously you'll see why I'm leaving it right till the end in a minute. But before we do that, I just want to say thanks for listening. If you enjoy it, spread it around to all your friends, social media, things like that. Let's grow the show. Why not? I've got all social media. We're basically Dark Histories on everything. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of it. Dark Histories. Um, But if you go to the website, which is darkhistories.com, you can get links for everything, including our Discord, which is like a nice little community it sort of ebbs and flows a little bit we get sort of days of activity where everyone sort of chats and then sort of several days where people just aren't around at the right times but it's a nice little community um and you know we can get on there talk about mysteries talk about episodes talk about anything really darkissues.com you'll find links to it everywhere contact me my email is on there uh get in touch that let me know anything you like really just want to get something off your chest, why not? Send it my way, I'll read it. Uh, if you want to support the show, we've got a Patreon. Really helpful for keeping the show running. On top of that, you get early access, ad-free episodes, uh, show notes, postcards, stickers, all sorts of stuff. Show notes? What am I talking about? Everyone gets show notes. You get my research notes, stickers, postcards, early access get it about four or five days before everyone else and the episode that you do get doesn't have any adverts things like that so you know a dollar a month three dollars a month five dollars a month it's not much really it's like buy me a beer i don't drink but you know buy me a coffee whatever for the amount of hours that i put into each episode you know i'm not taking the piss too much by sort of saying help support so yeah that's that if you want to go nuts if you don't don't go nuts Maybe share it about on social media instead because that helps just as much. Uh, leave a review in iTunes, anywhere you to keep your podcast, whatever, all that guff. Right, let's go. Competition time. So, I have made a fake number station broadcast. And I'm going to broadcast it at the end of this episode. What you need to do is go to darkhistories.com, the show notes, you'll find a one-time pad. You can use that one-time pad to decode the message. The message that you decode will tell you what you need to do to win. The first person that achieves that wins the prize, which I'm not going to tell you. It's all in the message. So yeah, here we go. Listen to the message. Go on darkissues.com, get the one-time pad. You can decode it. It's a little practical exercise. It's number stations. How to be a spy. Thanks for listening. I look forward to seeing if anyone actually can be asked. Sleep tight.
four, five, two, nine, nine, five, five, seven, nine, nine, eight, six, five, two, eight, 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 one, six, six, zero, six, two, nine, seven, five, one, one, four, 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 nine, four, one, four, zero, three, one, five, six, three, nine, one, six, four, six, five, two, seven, three, five, two, eight, nine, seven, seven, one, one, six, five, five, nine, nine, four, three, zero, zero, five, zero, nine, eight, seven, six, four, five, three, seven, six, seven, two, four, eight, zero, four, eight, six, two, zero, two, one, four, one, zero, four, seven, five, three, two, six, two, seven, four, eight, four, six, three, four, eight, one, nine, three, nine, five, six, three, seven, two, one, three, eight, three, three, seven, four, six, six, nine, one, one, five, zero, seven, zero, four, nine, nine, zero, four, seven, three, eight, seven, three, three, four, zero, nine, four, eight, seven, two, three, seven, eight, seven, one, four, nine, nine, zero, nine, seven, eight, three, four, two, zero, eight, seven, zero, four, two, six, four, nine, four, five, eight, six, seven, six, six, eight, seven, five, nine, eight, one, two, nine, five, six, five, seven, one, two, five, nine, eight, zero, two, one, six, nine, five, eight, five, three, zero, two, zero, one, nine, three, one, three, seven, two, three, seven, eight, six, nine, nine, zero, six, one, nine,
six eight seven six nine nine six nine zero three four five four one three seven zero five two six zero 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 zero